<laughs> great. It's good to be here with everyone today. I uh, had a great uh, last week getting ready for this message and enjoying some time away uh, with a friend of mine. And uh, today I'm going to be continuing on with our series here called True Meaning. And I want to begin with a true story for you. So this true story um, was written on Twitter, actually, uh, by a gal named Carol Blymeyer. And she shares this situation of treats uh, in a situation that happened in, in uh, by using Twitter. So she's tweeting. And uh, what happened was in her office, where she's an editor and a publisher, she starts overhearing this younger editor engage with their senior editor um, boss. They were getting ready to publish an article, and the editor boss is giving feedback to the younger gal, and she noticed that she misspells hamster. Hamster. Uh, she had a P, spelling it hamster instead of hamster. So uh, instead of taking the point, uh, instead of going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, this younger editor starts arguing back with her boss and uh, actually starts raising her voice at her and insisting that that's just the way she's always spelled it and uh, that's the way she was raised spelling it. And uh, people in the cubicles around the office are starting to listen in and hearing this lady insist that hamster is spelled with a P when we all know that. There is no P in hamster, but she's emotional, and uh, she's starting to hold back uh, tears, and, and she's getting offended, and even indignant, and then she ends up calling her mother from work and puts her on speakerphone so the whole office can hear, and uh, I'll, t- I'll just ask you a question. If your son or daughter, your 20-something-year-old child, calls you from work in a situation like this, and asks maybe about hamsters and its spelling or whatever she ends up asking, what would you tell your child? Yeah, take me off speakerphone would be a good beginning. But she's, she, believe it or not, the mother sides with the child. Not only that, but she says on speakerphone, mind you, that her boss was an idiot. On speakerphone! All right. She says again to the boss, I've always spelled hamster with a P in it. That boss, my boss, has no right to judge me, the young lady says to her mom. And the mom is agreeing with her in front of everybody in the office. You can go find this story on, on Twitter. It's, I mean, it's funny. It's sad. And what's interesting is when, when this was shared on Twitter in this series of tweets, comments start streaming in from other people saying that they're experiencing similar situations in their own workplace with young people not, unable to handle critique Um, unable to deal with any feedback at work. And university counselors are reporting that there's been this shocking increase in students who are unable to deal with basic disappointment and even constructive criticism. What's going on? Well, you didn't sign up for that long of a sermon. So I'm just going to address a possible answer from Scripture. We hate being told that we're wrong. And we're in the middle of a series called True Meaning. We're looking at verses that are used a lot and really misused a lot. And our hope is to come to know the true meaning of some of the most commonly used and misused verses. The Bible is not, as some people have said, basic instructions before leaving earth. You may have heard that. You may have even said it before. I'm not judging you on that. But it's, a, it's not a manual on how to behave well. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is a record of God 
revealing himself to creation, reaching out, redeeming, and how we can be made right before him. If we approach the Bible looking for tidbits of wisdom, a list of to-dos and not to-dos, even though it does contain all of that to some degree, if our focus is on what the Bible can do for us, then we've missed the point. And the point is knowing God. And the passage that we're looking at today is a popular verse, and it's really actually unique because even non-Christians use it. If there's one verse that everyone seems to know, it's this one. Judge not, and I bet you can finish it, lest you be judged, of course. And it's funny because you never hear someone repeat this verse without a tone. Judge not. It's a sassy verse. It's a defensive verse. It's a how dare you, back off man verse. And it gets extra mileage from Christians and non-Christians alike because they can toss in Jesus' name for good measure. Of course, there's more to it, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. What's interesting is this verse is actually used in both directions. I mean, when we're feeling judged, we might whip it out to get someone to leave us alone. And when we don't want to get involved, we can pull out this verse to justify our who am I to judge position, right? I mean, either way, we should know the true meaning of this verse. Don't you agree? So think about that young writer and not wanting to be critiqued on her spelling of hamster. Most people replying to that thread were sympathizing with what seems to be the obvious problem. She couldn't handle the truth. But an interesting group also commented that maybe we should understand her plight, know her background, or even have suggested that spelling is a social construct and allowances have to be made for alternative spelling. So why not here? Hamster, hamster, tomato, tomato, who are we to judge, right? Are you feeling the tension? (laughs) It's kind of a big deal. I mean, not the hamster part, but it's running so deep in our society. And without sounding like I'm exaggerating, it's actually an issue of biblical proportions. It's really on that scale. Because at the root of the issue, to some degree, is our misuse of those words. What if we could get it right on this one? What if by, as the Bible says, we rightly divide or correctly understand and teach the word? Then we could move forward on issues like this instead of just spinning back and forth in this weird world where everyone's right and no one's wrong, except, of course, the person who timidly lifts their hands and suggests that there actually is a right and a wrong. You see... I think you'll agree that deeply embedded into our nature is the sense that we're right. I mean, we wouldn't have done it, we wouldn't have said it, or posted it, or thought it, if we didn't think it was right. And if we didn't have to be taught this attitude, think about it. We just come on out of the chute, preloaded with that software. It's in our nature. Have you ever met a toddler? No one teaches a child to say, you're not the boss of me. Somehow, they come out with that exact mindset. Amen? (laughs) And two-year-olds do not have the corner on that market. We all want our way. We all want our actions to be justified, don't we? We all want our boss to appreciate our spelling, for the ref to make a call against the other team. Next slide. 
friends and family to accept our lifestyle, social media to agree with our opinions. So when Jesus says, judge not, we just happily tuck away that easy-to-memorize verse in our pocket in case anyone tries to disagree or criticize or otherwise make a call that's not in our favor. Next slide. Don't you judge me. Someone tries to judge our actions, we bring out the foul card faster than a World Cup soccer ref, drop that mic and feel not only justified but self-righteous because we are just quoting the very obvious words of Jesus himself and we have Jesus on our sides. Don't judge. If anyone appears to judge us, we can just remind them, hey man, don't judge. Jesus said it, simmer down and let me be. On the other hand, we read, do not judge, and we think, yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, I won't judge. That clears the way for us to not step in, not confront. And that's a relief to confronting because confronting is uncomfortable, isn't it? And we don't want to come off as judgmental. And when we'd rather not step in and make a call, we also look down at that same card and we use that verse to assure ourselves that we can stay out of it because, well, Jesus said so. Don't judge. Hmm. All right. Don't worry. I won't. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? And as much as we hate being judged or appreciate the free pass in case we might need to make a judgment, there is something else I think we all hate maybe more, and that's being misunderstood. And at the heart of this series, true meaning is our heart to know, really know and understand what God says. And we come from a good place and hopefully a humble place when we can recognize that we might have missed the point of what the Bible says, either because we were taught incorrectly or because we just didn't take the time to understand it. So when we're looking for true meaning, we're not only doing the right thing, we're doing the biblical thing. Paul said this, study and do your best to approve, to present yourself to God approved, a workman tested by trial, who has no reason to be ashamed, accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. When someone uses our words against us or to hurt someone else, we hate that, and we, and we hate it rightfully so. When someone misses the meaning of our words, it's frustrating, it's even divisive, and yet, are we doing that to Jesus? Let's see. Here's what Jesus said. Me krinete, hina me krithe. That's the Greek. Judge not that you be not judged. What if those, next slide, what if those five Greek words were the only words that we had ever had from Jesus Christ? Would we be missing something? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we would. Of course we would. The gospel writers recorded about 3,000 words of Jesus. And John said that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written about what Jesus did. Next slide. But we often treat Jesus' words like little sound bites, phrases that we end up misusing and miss the meaning of. Jesus spoke literally volumes before we can yank five words from all of that and use them to get our way or avoid doing something. Next slide. Let's put the words back into context. What had Jesus been teaching when he said, judge not? Jesus said those five famous words in the middle of the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew includes this part of Jesus' sermon after Jesus says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Luke sets that sermon and those words after he says, Love your enemies and be merciful. The larger context of this sermon has been Jesus elevating what it means to be a true disciple, lifting, redefining religion, not as a bunch of rules to follow, but a heart that follows hard after God and seeks God's righteousness. It's all been a series of be this, not that. In a way, it's Jesus holding up a huge Venn diagram with the religious people in the circle on the left and the true disciples on the right. And in the middle, the only common connection is a claim to know God, Lord, Lord. And the religious teach, don't murder. Jesus says, don't even hate. The religious say, no adultery. Jesus says, don't even lust. Can't hardly even get out of bed and go on with your day without that one. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love everyone, even your enemy. Put your righteousness on display. No, be holy for God. Pray for all to see how religious you are. No, pray with humility to God alone. Fast and make sure to post about it and look all gloomy. No, keep that between you and God. And Jesus warns just a few verses later. He says, next slide, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a warning against following in the hypocritical ways of the religious leaders. They infamously judged others from a place of pride, not humility. They were oppressive and legalistic instead of merciful. And right in that context, in the middle of a sermon about not worrying, about loving your enemies, about being merciful, in the middle of a sermon separating the truly righteous from the hypocrites, Jesus says, do not judge that you be not judged. Wait, what? What? The righteous are separated from the hypocrites. Isn't that a judgment? Are we to judge or not? Is this a trap? Next slide. Look what Jesus says after that. And I'm going to jump over a part of this on purpose for now. This is not a trap. This is important. This is put your thinking caps on. Discern. Chapter 7, verse 6 in Matthew. Actually, this is another pretty well-known and quoted verse. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Anyone hearing that statement in Jesus' time coming out of Jesus' mouth, anyone hearing that statement would have thought of the temple sacrifices. That's what was holy. That's what was set apart. That's what was sacred. And no one would have taken that lamb sacrificed to God Almighty and just tossed it out on the streets to mangy street dogs. All right? And then don't throw your pearls before swine or pigs, right? And we get that a little bit better, right? Pigs and pearls, we're not going to be doing that, right? It's easier for us to manage. And he says, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus is saying, don't be undiscerning. Know what's valuable. Make a judgment on that. Who should get what you have? You have what's holy. God, his words, Jesus, his teaching, Only those who will receive it, that's who you give it to. And how will you know? You're going to have to make a judgment call. You'll have to be discerning. Keep reading. It's really interesting. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Here Jesus is saying that you can judge a person if they're good or evil by the words they speak. Good, evil, righteous, unrighteous, dogs, pigs, holiness, hypocrisy. And sandwiched between all of those opposites is don't judge. But the way he has just shown is full of judgment. Be this, not that. 
Think this way, not that way. Be these people, not those. And you might feel like spectators in a tennis match, but wait for it. Here's what's exciting about really knowing the word of God. Not just coming to church and dialing it and have someone land it upon your head, but really digging into it on your own. Entering into it, coming before the Father, the author, the finisher of your faith. This is what's exciting about really knowing the word of God. It's deeper and it's richer and it's fuller and it's more satisfying and it's more fulfilling when you see it and you hear it and you embrace it all. It's the difference between seeing a pebble and witnessing the Grand Canyon. And while it's a lot to take in, it's so worth it when we do. So listen. Matthew 5, 17, speaking to his followers, he makes sure they know this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets, that was the Jewish Bible. It still is. It's the foundation that the audience had for making decisions between what was right and what was wrong. And Jesus is clear. And he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I'm not throwing all that out. I'm fulfilling it all. Jesus explains that true disciples, true disciples are about the heart and the spirit of the law. Yes, obey the law, but but do it with your heart, not with nitpicky legalism. And don't add to the law your personal preferences, your style, your way of doing things on top of God's law. If God says don't, don't. Where God is clear about his design and intention for his creator, and his, for his creation, honor that. So if Jesus fills the sermon with various kinds of judgments we have to make about people and whether they produce good or bad fruit and their intentions, whether they are true or false prophets, in order to lead a blessed and God-honoring life, clearly it's not as simple as judge not over and out, right? So what kind of judgment is he saying not to do? We'll take a look at Matthew 7, verse 2. Jesus compares judging to measuring. He says, for the judgment, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So to this day, we actually even use this as a word picture still. You see justice personified. She's holding a balancing scale. Jesus tells his hearers to judge with a fair scale rather than the unfair scales that they were experiencing regularly. And anyone listening would have immediately connected that with what he was saying because they've all been on the receiving end of this unjust, unfair, hypocritical judgment of the Pharisees, Sadducees, Romans, tax collectors, etc., even one another. And while that is taking its time to wash over them and sinking in, He tells a joke. It's an illustration, really. It's a little absurd, but it packs a punch. And he does this to make a point. Here's Jesus being raised by his earthly father, who by trade was a carpenter. And so Jesus goes into the woodshed as a visual illustration for something that he would have known and recognized. And perhaps his other fellow carpenters are nearby listening in. So he's creating this woodpecker. A woodpecker. (laughs) That would be funny, too. But he doesn't do that. (laughs) He creates a wood word picture or a wood picture. That's really funny, Jennifer. I know. Anyway, he says to them, why do you see the speck or the splinter or the speck of sawdust? Why do you see that which is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. His audience is chuckling as he's saying that. That would be dumb, right, Joe? Jose or Jewish names are. So 
How, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Ooh, and he's getting kind of intense here. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So are you imagining this? One guy with a little barely noticeable speck of sawdust. It's really only bothering him because have you ever gotten a speck in your eye? A little eyelash falls in there. Ladies, the mascara, a little thing of mascara. You're just like driving you insane. Of course, it happens right when you're in front of everybody giving a talk. Not that that's happening to me right now. Um, but it's, it drives you crazy. But you're really the only one who can actually see it, feel it, and get annoyed by it. And the other guy has this two-by-four. Now, sawdust in the eye, of course, no joke at all. We know how irritating that can be. But a log, a log, you're not moving anywhere. you got a log hanging out of your face, right? First, how can anyone see a splinter without noticing a massive beam? Second, why does the guy with the piece of lumber sticking out of his face offer to do eye surgery on his neighbor's eye? Jesus calls the person with the beam a hypocrite. Listen, not because he has the log to begin with, Because that he has the nerve to try to point out somebody else's issue, that's the hypocrisy. That's the sin. That's the, you better not be judging anyone, you Mr. Plank face, right? So what's the fix? You get the plank out. You have a planktectomy. You remove the log. You have a logotomy. All right. So Jesus tells them, does he tell them both to just deal with their own eye problems and keep to their separate corners by themselves? Does he say that? No, he does not. Does he say, get that log out and go on your merry way? Nope. Jesus tells Mr. Plankton with the beam to get it out before helping his brother with his splinter. But do help. Help the brother with the splinter. Jesus doesn't remove responsibility of believers to help spot and remove sin. He says, next slide, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter from your brother's eye. And we can all laugh a little and imagine the absurdity of it all. Obviously, I can't call out someone else's little splinter when I've got my own log to deal with and we get it. But there's something still difficult about it because, well, not because Jesus tells us not to judge. Here's the difficult. But because he warns us, to judge with humility when we do judge. And that's hard because we do need to judge. We just can't judge by what we see only on the outside. Jesus says this in John chapter 7, verse 24, really important. Write it in the margin of your Bible and connect these two passages so that you're not yanking verses out of context. Listen to Jesus' words. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So pulling out don't judge and making it a sort of life verse is really missing the point, isn't it? Jesus expects us as Christians, true disciples, to judge and do that even in the spirit of a true follower of Christ, which he's just explained in the entire rest of the sermon. Mercy, humility, peacemaking, meekness, love. What Jesus is doing here is he's disarming us from being prideful in order to see, and we should see, if we're being merciful and we're loving our enemies, truly loving And we are greeting them in order to see we have to deal with our own plank eye. Don't be so prideful that you point out someone else's splinter when you've got to deal with your log. But do deal. Deal with your log and do take out that speck. Go to one another. Understand that the word Jesus uses here for judge is krino. The Greek word krino, and just to make Joe happy, what language is the New Testament written in? He will not hear that. You'll have to say it louder. Greek. 
right? You're listening, Joe, I know. Greek, it means to condemn or judge overly harshly. That's what it means here. Jesus is talking about the critical, judgmental, condemning self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They weren't criticizing people because of their sin. They were criticizing them because of their personality, their weakness, their preferences, even the clothes they wore. They were criticizing their motives, which they couldn't see, of course, to go around saying, well, we should love everybody and never judge anybody. Hmm. That isn't what Jesus is saying. In fact, in the law that Jesus said that he perfectly fulfilled, do you know what it says in the Old Testament, in the commands? It says in Leviticus 19, 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Oh, that seems obvious. Don't do that. How do we not hate them? Rebuke them frankly so you will not share in their guilt. In other words, to allow your fellow to sin is to hate him. It's not to love him. So if you see sin, it is love that makes a change. It is love that moves in. It is love that demands repentance. Paul said it was God's kindness that brought us to repentance. Why? Because if he hadn't, we would have died in our sins. And that's the farthest thing from kindness. And people say, well, I don't want to say anything. I just love everybody. No. When you find sin and you tolerate it, if you are hating your brother, you're not loving him. Love confronts and forgives and restores. It's hate that ignores. It's hate that lets a person go down that path. Can I just say that it would be easier if this whole thing was just judge not and let God sort it out? That would be easier. But it's not, though. That's not what it says. See, our faith is more nuanced than that. It requires much more of us because we've given much and we honestly are just too tired to really think harder about it. I know I am. I'd rather not be confronted. I'd rather not confront. But that's not what the Bible says. But I see this exact mindset in the way we engage in church. We have a Bible, God's Word. And it clearly lays out one path to God, one righteous way of living, truth, falsehood, good, evil. And yet, for fear of offending, churches have slinked away from teaching doctrine because it sounds too exclusive. Churches tiptoe around truth and soften the blow in the way they teach the Bible. Because of this, many of us in the church have become uncomfortable with absolutes and even suspicious of anyone who seems firm in their own convictions. We've thinned out the holy words of God to just the quotables like, I can do all things through Christ, or ask and it will be given to you. And we place them on bumper stickers, and we put them on our magnets, and we plucked out phrases from the Bible that feel inspiring. And we share the happy-sounding of teach, happy-sounding teachings of Jesus, and we put them on photos of sunsets and of little kittens, and we pop verses like Xanax, hoping that it will get us through the day. And then we pop another quick quote the next day, looking for the same fix. And instead of allowing God's holy word to work in our sinful heart and causing us to sob, to sob in recognition of our sin, we've cuddled up to comforting passages that make us feel good and have dismissed the harder passages as outdated because they're culturally irrelevant. The most important command in the Bible is no longer one of the Ten Commandments or even the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The most important command today has become judge not. We've made judge not our life first, not by putting it on a mug or refrigerator magnet, but by living in a way that keeps true godly engagement at arm's length. 
all while justifying our distaste for confrontation and missing the true meaning of Jesus' command. And if you break that command, ironically, in the judgment of others, you're dismissed, you're unfriended, you're blocked, you're blackballed, even from people within the church. I'm sure that can't be true, you say, but it is. And you know why I know it's true? Because I include myself in the we. I tiptoe around truth. I'm cautious of speaking around people for fear of offending. I've held back. I've held back from reaching out because I didn't want to come off as judgmental. I can be offended and prone to to see myself as being treated too harshly. I see the speck in other people's eyes, and I miss the log in my own. And I don't want to hear criticism, and I push off the critique of others, and I dismiss them as being in no position to judge me. And so because it's statistically unlikely that in a room this size, I'm the only one who has an issue in this area, I'm talking to at least one other person, one other hypocrite like me. So this message is for you and me. Not for someone sitting next to you. Not for someone you wish was hearing this message. It's for me, and it's for you, and it's for anyone else who might want to confess that we do miss the mark. And that we need to understand what the true meaning of God's word is, even if we end up uncomfortable with what we learn. Don't judge others from a hypocritical, prideful heart. Don't refuse to be judged either. It goes both ways. It also means we got to move in. we got to speak up. And here's three principles to consider in understanding and living out the true meaning of this verse. One, don't be judgy, but make judgments. There's a difference between judgy, judgy McJudgerson you are, stop it, and making judgments, having discernment, being humble, judgy. They care about being right. Making a judgment cares about the person. Being judgy is critical and judgmental and hypocritical. Making judgments is discerning and humble. Followers of Jesus must make moral judgments with the full awareness of their own sinfulness. We're a people of mercy and grace because we've been given such mercy and amazing grace. We need to correct sin in the church, but listen. Next slide. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not for those inside the church whom you are to judge. You see, there's sinful behavior all day long out in the world. Television, movies, YouTube, out on the street, in advertising, people we know. Our call as believers is not to judge non-Christians calling out their sin, unless maybe you're uniquely called prophet along the lines of John the Baptist. But that's not our job. With our own brothers and sisters here in the church, in our community in Christ, we do have a call. Each of us do. If, if it comes to this, it's up to us to prayerfully address a fellow Christian. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Then, number two, point number two, never judge with hypocrisy. Check your heart. Jesus commands his followers to make judgments about sin. However, we can't see ourselves as better than others. We have to have that planktectomy first, right? Get that plank out of your own eye. And I love King David's heart in all of this. 
as he's singing the praises of God in Psalm 139, and he's caught up in how wonderful God is, how well God knows him and has provided for him, he suddenly gets angry. He's angry at all the wicked people around him. And even though it is righteous anger, I mean, he's not angry that someone cut him off in his chariot. He's genuinely angry that people are defaming God. So it's righteous anger. Listen to how mad David gets in Psalm 139. He says, if only you would slay the wicked, oh God. Anyone ever felt like that? If only you would slay the wicked, oh God. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I mean, he really yells this out. And then, and this is beautiful. It's humble. And you feel the shift in his tone. He knows he needs a log autonomy. He says, search me, oh God. That's it. Humility. And know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts, and taking his eyes off of the offenders and asking God to see if there is any offensive way in me. Why? Lead me in the way everlasting. That's our heart. Never hypocritical, never prideful. Always asking first for God to check our hearts. That's why we read that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. After getting confronted by Nathan about his adultery, David wrote this again, and hear David's heart. He says in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? Because he wants other sinners like him to also be restored. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. That's the goal. Don't cast me out, God. Clean my heart. I want to bring other people along this way. Shouldn't that be our heart as well? I mean, right here in this church, sitting next to you, across from you, and right here behind this podium are people who need you, your heart, your humility, your discernment, your wisdom, your love, your willingness to come before God and get your heart made new, your willingness to move in then and to speak truth and to hear truth in love. Along with that planktectomy, we all need a heart transplant, don't we? We need our hearts new. Why? So we feel good? Sure. We'll be much better when we're right with God with a clean heart. But also and always so that we have nothing hindering us from reaching across the aisle. And so number three of our principles for applying this is don't fear. Perfect love, godly love, the love that Jesus gave us and modeled for us, that kind of love casts out fear in the church We should be so full of love, there's literally no room for fear. Fear of hearing from people pointing out sin or fear from confronting sins in one another. No fear. Perfect love casts that out. Instead, we're people of grace with room to grow and expectation that we're all sinners saved by grace. Not one of us has this down. Not one. We are transparent. We're not hypocritical here. We cultivate openness. We elevate grace. We cherish one another. This community in Christ isn't for people who have their act together. It's for people who have Jesus. Amen? And then, instead of isolating ourselves when we're hurt or we're angry, instead of avoiding a person who's wronged us, we would come with no judgment No heart to condemn and sit in the place of God, but a heart to restore. And there's a simple test to see if you're operating in fear or if you're operating in love. Are you fearful of encountering or just running into that person that you need to speak to? Are you fearful that someone may confront you about a sin in your life? 
Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. When you find yourself lacking in power or love or a sound mind, you're likely living in fear. And let me tell you something that may shock you. We're all human, except maybe Ruth Carter, who's mostly angel with a little dusting of human. But for me, I'm human. I'm human from the roots of my freshly covered gray hair to the bottom of my heart. The heart, by the way, that the Bible has said is deceitful and wicked and beyond understanding. Ask my husband. He'll tell you the same. And while you and I may have grown up and grown older, we are still all, to some degree, that same foot-stomping two-year-old as likely to demand our own way, to judge without mercy, to withhold righteous judgment out of fear. And we are prone to read a command like, don't judge it, and use it to justify our resistance to hearing truth from our brothers and sisters, and then also use it to keep from speaking God's love. When all along, if we held the greatest commandment closer to our heart and let its truth resonate with us and pour out of us, we would see a revolution in this place. And what is that command? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly, truly love your neighbor as yourself. Love is patient and kind and doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not prideful, doesn't insist on its own way doesn't get irritable. It's not resentful. It's sad when wrongs are done. It's happy when truth prevails. Love bears all things, believes, hopes, and endures all things. And when everything else fails and fades and passes away, love remains. That is why we can come to one another and hear truth, be discerning, lift high the cause of Christ, and do it all, even when it's hard. Do it for the love of God. And so, When we come to a verse like, judge not lest you be judged, let's not use those words for our convenience. It's neither a command to never judge or to avoid judging. It's a command to judge without hypocrisy, plank-free judgment. How then can we have that plank removed? We can no more remove a plank from our own eye than we can perform LASIK eye surgery on ourselves. Only someone with perfect vision can remove our plank. And we know that person. That is Jesus. Jesus sees past our eyes and into our hearts. And what would happen to our relationships, our church, if we surrendered to the plank remover? If we each of us said, lay down before him to the mercy seat of God and prayed like David, search me, O God, know my heart. I can tell you what would happen. Healing. Because not only does God's perfect love search our hearts and cast out fear, fear of judging and being judged, in a moment we're going to worship in praise and in prayer and through communion. We're going to come to the altar, to the great plank remover, Jesus Christ, and remember him at the communion table. And when Paul addressed the church about communion, he reminded them of what Jesus said. That the bread represented his own broken body and the wine represented the new covenant in his blood and that it was to be in remembrance of him. And Paul also admonishes those who take communion to first examine or judge himself. So serious was this issue that Paul even said people were weak and sick and died. Why? For taking communion in an unworthy manner, an unexamined manner. And so as we come to that table today, examine your heart. Judge truly, as Paul said. And maybe you're sitting here today and you know the Holy Spirit is moving in you. You have sin in your life that you know you need cleaned out. 
You've resisted and avoided making things right with someone in your life. You're tired of fear. And you're tired of hesitation. And you want the spirit that God gives us. And it's not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a clear thinking mind. A mind that can discern and act in bold love today. Right now, this is your time. The praise team's going to come on up. And they're going to lead us to the altar and worship to the room of grace before God. And as we sing, you can come forward in prayer. You can take communion. The tables are in the back of the room. Take the bread and the cup and remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ broken and poured out for you. True meaning is the theme of our sermon series, but really, it's the theme of every sermon here. Amrata Christian Church is a place where we teach and we preach and we live to share always the true meaning of Jesus Christ and his words. If you want to be a part of this church, you can come on up and speak to one of us as well during this time. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word and how it slices open our hearts and teaches us what's true. And we pray in this moment that you would continue to work in our hearts. Keep us focused on your love. Help us judge rightly how you want us to live. Forgive us and cleanse us and accept our worship now as we come to the altar and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.